This is the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Matthew Eldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. Vatican II's Declaration on Religious Liberty says, Government must acknowledge the right of parents to make a genuinely free choice of schools and of other means of education. And the use of this freedom of choice is not to be made a reason for imposing unjust burdens on parents, whether directly or indirectly. Are American Catholic parents today able to make a genuinely free choice of schools and means of education for their children? Today we're going to talk about school choice and some of the challenges that Catholic parents face in seeking to give their kids a Christian education. Here with us is Greg Dolan. Mr. Dolan is Associate Director for Public Policy in the Secretariat of Catholic Education here at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Aaron. Thank you for having me on. And just to give us a little more context, because Vatican II has a lot of great stuff uh, on this topic, on on the rights of parents and choosing their children's education. So let me give us a couple more quotes. Uh, These come from Vatican II's Declaration on Education. Uh, Parents who have the primary and inalienable right and duty to educate their children must enjoy true liberty in their choice of schools. Consequently, the public power, which has the obligation to protect and defend the rights of citizens, must see to it, in its concern for distributive justice, that public subsidies are paid out in such a way that parents are truly free to choose according to their conscience the schools they want for their children. Now the statement goes on in the next section to say, the church esteems highly those civil authorities and societies which, bearing in mind the pluralism of contemporary society and respecting religious freedom, assist families so that the education of their children can be imparted in all schools according to the individual moral and religious principles of the families. Greg, start us off here. Can you comment on how freedom in education in in the United States measures up to this vision that's being offered by the church? I mean, are parents in the U.S. genuinely free I'm assuming the answer is no, <laughs> and so uh, what are some of the obstacles that they face? I, I would offer a, a two-step answer, actually, Aaron. The first one I would say is the government actively working against the existence of religious freedom in Catholic schools, and on that first point, I, I'm happy to say that the answer is mostly no, mm-hmm. in that we are allowed to operate our schools as uh, if you are... Um, utterly private and not taking any government money, you can operate almost uh, as you wish. Mm-hmm. You, you have to, usually at a state level, guarantee that you're actually educating children, which is a very minimum standard, or that your building is safe. Very basic, bare-bones things that I think are, are non-controversial. The second question is where it really gets much more important mm-hmm. to answering the call of Catholic social teaching. And in in that, I would phrase it as the government living up to that call and and truly supporting choice. And and on that, I would say no. A minority of states currently offer assistance to parents. And even at that, it's a subset of parents. Now, these are the most deserving parents of families from in in low-income situations, the most needy, and who are the most deserving of help, usually is how these programs are structured. But they are a subset, nevertheless. And then even of that group of, of low-income families, 
we're only helping a, a portion, a percentage of them, not all of them, not across the whole state. Sometimes you see it just in cities. So I would say at one level, uh, being allowed to exist is important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's some it's not nothing. There's the, in this world, <laughs> there, there is not nothing. Yeah. However, it is not up to the ideal that we would like to see uh, mm-hmm. from the Catholic perspective. What are some of the ways that, um, I mean, we, we Catholics in general, we promote what's generally is called school choice, right? Or I'm told sometimes it's called parental choice. We is prefer that right? parental choice because it places the emphasis where it belongs, which is on the parents making a choice, not on the end result, which is a school choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and I mean, the idea is that uh, what we see here in these documents that we just read is that uh, it's not just for us. I think sometimes people may think we just are promoting this stuff just for us, but we think that all parents should be able to educate their children in accordance with their religious convictions. Yes, I think that's a very important part. What we currently have in, in the U.S. as far as publicly funded um, schooling, as far as our public system, it's it's a monopoly run by the government. It's a monopoly provider system, and um, that's resulted in secular state schools that mm-hmm came out of this idea of a common school, which was a a Protestant common school where you'd have the lowest common denominator of Christian teaching. And our schools were originally set up kind of in opposition to that to say, no, we're going to have an authentically Catholic school over here. Mm -hmm. And what it's morphed into, though, from that common school perspective of a basic Christianity is a secular state enforcement of of a secular religion almost of schools have no religious grounding. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I sometimes laugh at, if you just read the school materials, you'd be really confused why we take this break in the in the end part of December through the new year. <laughs> why is there this gap? And, and why is there all of a sudden in the end of March, early April, some other gap for a week? Well, yeah. Spring break is, is a, you know, is a derivation of, of Easter recess that we used to get at school. So uh, if what we would prefer to see from the Catholic perspective, though, is a publicly funded kind of a universal payer for schools in that all parents are empowered to choose, and that is empowered by our collective resources as the state represents through taxes, but everyone gets the say over where their money goes to fund an education, Mm -hmm. and that would provide for parents to make a religious choice if they so choose, and hopefully they would so choose. Mm I mean, can you say a little bit more because um, to help us out here about kind of what the policy solutions are that are being explored? I mean, I think for for me at least, when I hear the terms like school choice or parent, you know, choice in education or however it's it's termed, parental choice, that you know, we think of vouchers, and you kind of alluded to that, saying there's help for for people who are really in need, but. I'm just curious, I mean, are there other kind of, yeah, how does it work? Like, what are some of the policy solutions being discussed out there? So the voucher is kind of what I would say the original or or the first idea of how to empower parents in educational choice. They are direct and straightforward. The government hands you a coupon, says turn this coupon in at any school, and we'll reimburse the school for your tuition costs. And those can work, and they can be very effective. We have a limited number of states, really just a handful of states that do it, and we have one big one here in D.C., not big, um, but importantly big in prominence here in D.C., the Opportunity Scholarship Program in D.C. that's federally funded. But I would quickly say that the current legal thicket in the U.S. at the state and at the federal level 
it can become quite a burden if you're taking money directly as a school, a school with a religious character, especially if you're taking that money directly from the government. So there are a number of alternative ways that kind of mediate the government's direct involvement. And one of the most popular ones that we're discussing at the federal level is a scholarship tax credit. And in that system, a donor gives money to a nonprofit organization. That nonprofit organization repackages the money it receives into scholarships for deserving students, usually meeting an income threshold or some other type of attendance area requirement. And the donor at the beginning of that chain gets to write off of his taxes more than the charitable deduction is worth. So, you know, the charitable deduction being kind of the floor of, of charitable giving, these tax credits increase that percentage, ideally up to 100%, so a dollar for dollar, for the donation to a nonprofit that gives scholarships out. The other one is an ESA. We've seen this at the state level. Uh, that stands for Education Savings Account. Mm -hmm. The government pre-funds an account that parents control for each child and that money can be used for tuition or for a number of other services that are ancillary to going to public school. Mm -hmm. They can be used for tuition at private school, like I said, or they can be used, or they, sorry, they can be saved and then rolled over into use for higher ed mm -hmm. or other uses later on. So now this is something that a bishop once pointed out and I thought it was a very important point to always remember is that you know when we talk about government funding of things we're talking about really our money our taxpayer dollars and so this is really an area where like we can stand up and say well this is you know this is our money we're talking about here and but I'm interested to know about so these uh, policy proposals are all currently would be at the state level or would it be like a, a, a federal options as well? So we, the most fruitful ground for this is at the state level. That's where we've seen the most progress on these questions and it's where a lot of the natural nexus is because a lot of funding for uh, education happens at the state level and it's where people have the most touch and you know, subsidiary and all that. The reason that we talk about it at the federal level is that there are federal education spending programs and those could be better redirected towards empowering parents' choice. And in this current, right now, political moment, there's a discussion of a tax reform bill and in that tax reform and tax changes, you could um, easily slip in, uh, slip in, I don't mean it surreptitiously and we're not gonna hide it, but we've, we've been talking about it and you can attach in there a uh, tax credit for the scholarships like we're talking about. So that's why right now that's the most pertinent question, mm -hmm. but it doesn't exclude anything else that might be going on at the state or federal level too. You know, Changing some of the ways that the Department of Education spends its dollars that end up in, in following students and changing it so that it would follow students and actually allow them to use it for tuition you know, the, the federal government sends out about $16, in, $16 billion in support for low-income kids, but it sends it in the form of teaching uh, and, and learning help for the, te for the teachers and for the school districts. If they instead sent it as direct aid to those low-income families to use for tuition, that would be a lot more effective in our opinion. Mm -hmm. Getting them to do that is a big burden and it would come with some strings that we would worry about, like I mentioned, with the voucher concern and the federal government funding our schools more directly. So there, there'd be ways, hopefully, to do that. 
um, but it's just currently not on the top of the list of things that Congress is debating. I mean, I can see also, if I'm hearing you right, the ESA option, um, that that would help out homeschooling families too, correct? I mean, yes. it, like you're saying, it could go for anything that's education related. So, I, get, I mean, it's it seems like that could have, it, the impact would be pretty broad, right? Yes, my, th my non-theologian reading of it is that the ESA would most fit with Catholic social teaching in that you are truly empowering parents and you're not limiting them really in any way other than that they must use the money for educating their child, mm -hmm. which is a duty and a responsibility they have anyway, so they should be happy to fulfill that. The ESA really does allow them the most flexibility for where to go to school, how to go to school, what is schooling, mm -hmm. what is education, and if you read the documents, you know, our schools are called to meet a high standard, and that high standard is, you know, the most prevailing, best prevailing around, but maybe that's not for every parent, maybe that's not for every Catholic parent because the school doesn't exist, whatever. So the ESA, in my opinion, would most fit the Catholic social teaching. The mm -hmm. tax credit is kind of a half step there. Yeah, yeah. And the voucher, you need a good, wholesome government to fulfill a voucher. And sometimes we don't have that. Um, mm -hmm. you, need a, you need a government that's willing to be a partner with religious liberty and with religious freedom. And as this podcast probably enunciates in many other ways, <laughs> yeah. that's not always what we have. Right, so. right. Mm -hmm. Can I, I just, I'm wondering about the role still now of um, like the state and local um, school districts and, and schools. As I can remember in high school, getting my parents to have to sign a form to say, you know, Mary, you don't have to go to health class this week because we're going to talk about contraception and demonstrate all sorts of things and whatever. So I, you know, I, I didn't have to go to health class that week. That was kind of great, you know. I went to the library instead and studied. But now are those kinds of things still generally operating? in Because that was this was a public high school. So... Mm -hmm. For the most part, um, are, what are you aware of in terms of like challenges to you know parents' rights, really, when it comes to teaching yeah. no, values to, in it, schools? It, it, you, at the end there, you, you said exactly, it gets to the fundamental question, who's in charge of these students and, and what is, who should determine what they're taught and what they're not taught? And too often, it this country has tended towards recently, well, we all get to decide what your kid learns. And that's been a uh, very unfortunate trend that we've been facing. And so those those issues still tend not tend to come up. They still do come up almost weekly. I the and solving these big questions about the nature of humanity, about what the purpose of life is, and then how you go about that. Those are all huge questions that we're being asked to solve in very not conducive to those types of real deep arguments and then we're asked to do it we're, we're offloading that onto a group of teachers and professionals that are supposed to be there to do something completely different they're supposed to teach the basic building blocks they're not supposed to answer those deep questions for you especially at the kind of young ages that they're being asked to do them now mm -hmm. so those issues do come up all these um you know that the cato institute keeps a uh, school fights or public school battleground map um, all of these kind of issues that come up, you know, just just this week it was about which which play would be done at the schools, uh, high schools, you know, spring time or fall play of you know something controversial. And I can't remember exactly what controversy it was, but I'm sure it was controversial. And so you have these mm -hmm. fights. Uh, we saw a couple of years ago. Actually, I think it might have had to do with the election. It came up a little bit more. Was 
the vaccine debate and this, you know, idea that they cause autism and, and what are the uh, proper um, ways to opt out of vaccines, if at all. And so these debates come up and, you know, there's, and I, I only mention that one because there's religious reasons sometimes that people have for not mm-hmm. wanting to take and mm-hmm. are those valid? Are they not? Who's in charge of those? And, and those are enforced through the school though. That's how, so the schools get dragged into this great debate through well, to sign up for your local public school, you have to, to show up at school, you have to be vaccinated. And so mm-hmm. it enters all these other questions and it really gets back to my main home point here, which is we've entered all of these other ancillary issues that don't need to be fought out at school into school. And so that we're all fighting about them constantly because your child's future is at stake yeah, yeah. at the mm-hmm. school. It's a real push and pull of, ex- of recognizing a reality where sometimes students are in such a position where they're that is a lot of the support system and a lot of the ecosystem that they need and going too far and almost encouraging or making that the reality for more students than it needs to be so that's something we often do talk about and our friends at catholic charities do a lot of wraparound services Um, but at what point are you overstepping the bound and, and kind of pushing the parent aside you know when when they're getting two, maybe two and a half meals with an afternoon snack after that, they're getting all of their food through school and then they're only care for their well-being um, physically at, at school. And so those are real questions too. Those tend to not be too much of political flashpoints right now just because there is kind of a general movement towards, you know, the, the kids that we can't help, let's help. But I, I think it raises a good question. You know, you mentioned these kind of... Um, really big existential questions that are being forced on to kids. And I mean, I think one of the big ones that um, in this building we, we kind of think about sometimes or have to talk about is the issue with the, the transgender ideology that's um, coming up in schools. And I kind of wonder, like, I mean, because that you're talking about serious questions about about what the human person is and, and human identity. So, I mean, it's a major you know, a uh, question go, that is kind of roiling in our um, society, in our culture right now. And it um, comes up in schools. I'm curious if if you've seen interest in parental choice kind of increase in recent years as this has become such a big issue. I mean, I, I can imagine, I don't have any particular person in mind, but I can imagine that some parents who even were in favor of marriage redefinition, you know, I mean, who are more on that side on that issue, still like see this as like, this is too far. You're going to teach my kindergartner that she could actually be a he or however it goes. I mean, um, I, I think for a lot of people, this may seem like it's it's too much. Um, so I just wonder with all of the confusion and disagreement in our country over especially about sexuality which is not just about sex but it's about what about it's about deepest meaning of life oftentimes um and what makes a human uh, a human uh have you seen i'm curious with all of this confusion you know because i mean how is a how when there are so many different answers to these questions how's how how can the public schools or one kind of system of education handle that (laughs) um have you seen right. you know more interest lately? I, I would agree with you that the in the culture wars, 
whoever's winning at the current moment is always susceptible to overreach, and we might be seeing that from a certain side in the culture war right now. But be that as it may, I would say we've actually seen. I, I don't. I don't deny that that the impetus for some families might start to become an aversion to what's being taught at the schools. I. I would say that we actually, I would more fear that we see those issues come into our schools in the form of legislation that comes along with money, and I'm actually more worried about that okay. than I am uh, than I am excited about the parents that might realize that they should be taking a bigger hand in their student's mm-hmm. education, their child's education. Uh, but I would also say, though, that in general, our argument for parental choice in education is more, you know, our bread and butter issues are more about safety, opportunity, and academics. Mm-hmm. And those are where people, especially the kind of families that are the most ill-served by their public school, they're in the inner cities or they are just in areas where the school is just letting them down utterly. And we tend to see that more in inner cities and, and big cities, but you can see it in kind of any community. But mm-hmm. the real advantage of choice or at least the the practical tangible example or um, good of choice typically tends to be your school's completely unsafe and your kid is in an environment where you don't want them to be anymore and your your child just is not getting the opportunity that they deserve or or need to because they're highly gifted and they need to achieve or the offerings at that school just don't match up with them or they don't fit the one-size-fits-all education that they're being thrust on them or that the building just is not full of good teachers. Too much teacher turnover, whatever the, whatever the reason might be, they're just not learning and they would prefer to try somewhere else for better academics. So those are our real bread and butter reasons for people to choose and I don't think we'll ever exhaust the three of those. Right, um, right. So the other issues that bring people into our movement are helpful. But those three, I think, are really what get people moving. And that's beautiful. I mean, I'm just totally moved by that because what you're saying, it's not about, you know, we're not talking about just Catholic parents with Catholic kids. We're talking about, like, we, our approach is advocating for everyone, for every child. It doesn't matter if they're Catholic or not. No, like, we're concerned about their safety, first and foremost. I mean, that's just... I don't know. Just, just beautiful to know yeah. that that's our church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? and and I would say what, the thing that I hear most from a lot of our Catholic school superintendents around the country is we do this job because we're Catholic, not because they are. Mm-hmm. And especially when we a- enter into these government programs and we start getting the support that comes along with these students who are most needy and most deserving, those kids are not coming in as full-fledged Catholics. They're not coming in from Catholic homes. They are coming there for the three reasons that I just mentioned. One of those three or all three. And our job is to teach them first and then show by example that maybe, you know, we we get a lot of Catholics out of these programs and out of these kind of populations because they see the witness and they see our our Catholic teachers and our Catholic principles and they start to want to model their lives after that. And it is very beautiful. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's one of the best arguments for these kind of programs is that they serve the common good. Mm-hmm. And the common good is served by people who are motivated to come and be part of a school. Now, I'm not saying that the rest of the schooling world doesn't have this, but I think we have it in a special way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important part of what we do. And I would just say, because Mary, you hinted at it twice, is that um, the, the private school term that's often attached to talking about our sector of education, that's 
I, I try not to use it because I, I feel like it's appended on us from outside. We're open to the public. We're here to serve everyone. We would love to take everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, the, sometimes the funding and the financing don't match up, but our schools are there to serve everyone. We're, we're public just as much as everything else. And like you said about the tax dollars, you know, our, our parents are paying those tax dollars and then they're paying tuition. And so that's where a lot of the frustration that some of these parents face, you know, especially when they're right on the bubble of being able to go to our schools. And so that's why we advocate for these policies to reach as far as they can and be near universal because our, the middle class, middle income families are really who want to stay at our schools. They're the, they're the real center and, and the glue of our schools. But if they can't afford to be there because they're paying taxes for their house and, and the property taxes, and then they're paying the tuition on top of that, and tuition's only going up as our entire labor force in Catholic schools have switched from 97% religious who were you know free, quote unquote, mm-hmm. to 97% lay, mm-hmm. um, and they cost a lot more nowadays. And mm-hmm. so those people are raising their own families. So mm-hmm. it, it has increased the costs, and that's where the, the kind of double double dipping that our parents have to do and that's why that's becoming um, such an issue i think you making that point about not being not using the term private that private schools is is important because i mean one thing we talk about a lot on this or that comes up a lot on this podcast is this kind of um uh kind of putting together the terms religious and private you know where and then i mean the implication is that then the secular school which is supposedly neutral although it's not really neutral um but the implication is that that is public and that then religion is this private thing when that's not the case you have it's um the public is 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 um it's all of us and it's it's broad and it's and it's pluralistic uh it's not secular or neutral uh and so i think that that's important in fact i've heard um and aaron what happens when you start to accept that it should be private you know even daniel in the bible he went and prayed in his room and he still got thrown in the lion's den <laughs> yeah. so let's keep in mind where if you take this too private where it ends up yeah. it ends yeah. up in the I same want, place i want to see some some nuns and habits teaching in public schools right yeah, now right, that would be right. kind of fun right yeah. you know well and you know i mean i i heard i read uh, in a, a brief uh, for a case involving the Ten Commandments, um, a public display of ten, the Ten Commandments, uh, actually from a, from a Muslim group, saying that the answer is not to take away public display of, of religiosity because what that ends up doing is actually just favoring the religious majority. Like you mentioned, Christmas, we have Christmas break even in public schools, we just don't call it a Christmas break because, because the the majority religion is still Christian in this country. And so in this brief was saying that, that these sorts of actions of trying to strip the public, from trying to strip religion from the public, it only harms religious minorities. It doesn't, the, the religious majority, everybody's still gonna know why the courthouse is closed on Christmas. So it'd be better to have, it's better to have you know a truly pluralistic public instead of trying to strip strip it away because you're just going to favor the majority doing the other uh, trying to make the public supposedly neutral or secular um, but kind of on this theme you know, I want to turn a little bit to the you know what the other side of this of this debate uh, says that 
you know, one argument that I've seen recently, actually, in an article in The Atlantic, uh, was arguing that, that um, you know, that the government schools are necessary for the cultivation of citizens. And I'm sure you come across this a lot. Uh, yeah, and I'd be interested in your thoughts, like how you respond to that. My sense, as somebody who's not, like, kind of enmeshed in these, although I have my own children, so I do kind of follow it uh, a little bit just as a personal issue, but... Now, my general sense is that religious schools, whether they're Catholic or Jewish or Protestant or even Muslim, often often seem to do a better job of developing citizens. I mean, you know, and I don't mean this to like say be negative about public schools, but in general, this is my understanding. Yeah, I know that the numbers bear you out, Aaron, and the Catholic school effect goes back to the the seventies and the the Coleman report. Um, on, on Catholic schools, especially at the high school level, and the lesson is that our kids do better academically and achievement-wise. Um, and I say our kids, meaning kids who get the help to come into our schools and the ones who are already choosing to go there because the parents can afford to go there or have the, the means to be able to get them to go there. Once they're in our schools, they become our kids, and they all have generally the same outcomes. And it's not just academic and um, college and career achievement it's on civics, it's on volunteerism, it's on civic knowledge. So that is a real outcome that happens. Our, our kids do better. I don't have the number in front of me, but we do better on the NAEPs civics test. Um, we do better on almost all the NAEPs. No, we do better on all the NAEPs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- the, there is a real positive, and, and I would add the, the last intangible, and maybe it's a more of an explanation for why our kids are better citizens and volunteers and everything, they have to learn to grapple with these tough questions and also uh, uh, the kind of life questions we we're talking about and also be able to present them in a way that is amenable to the rest of society. So if you're learning, even if you're at the most orthodox Catholic school and you're learning everything by the book and, and all that, you still have to go home and interact with all your friends who don't have that background. And mm-hmm. so you're learning even as you're going through that and especially in most of our Catholic schools, you're gonna have healthy debates about this in our Catholic schools. In this building where we all believe the same things, we have healthy debates about the way to interpret right, that right. and everything. So mm-hmm. as long as it's acknowledged, you know, these, these life questions are grappled with in a positive way in our schools, and that trains these kids to be much better at being citizens, and I think that's a big part of citizenship is being able to understand, um, you know, synthesize what other people believe and then come to happy conclusions. Mm-hmm. You know, the another, pr- probably the most common argument uh, against parental choice in education is that it's taking money away from public schools. I think this gets, I, I think this gets to the public-private thing that we were talking about because the assumption is that like, well, your religious school is like a country club almost. You know, like uh, that it's a pri- this private thing that's just for a small group. Uh, but how do you respond to this this argument that that it's taking money away from public schools to put them uh, into use of for sectarian groups? Sectarian is often the the code word for well, really, it's the code word for Catholic from the nineteenth century. Yeah. But you know, how do you respond to that argument? I, I would just reiterate: our schools are for everyone too, and there's no reason that people should be. I mean, we we want everyone to come to our schools and uh, we work on making sure everyone stays in our schools once they're there uh and then in that we 
if it depends how you do your accounting, uh, I would say that we save the state money because if you give, I know in Florida, they've accounted it, they're saving them tens of millions of dollars a year and they've saved them over a hundred million dollars over the course of the Florida tax credit scholarship program that they have down there that is now up to a hundred thousand kids a year because these kids are getting a six to eight thousand dollars scholarship and they're going to high school and K to eight on that. Whereas if they went to the public school, they the the drain on the public resources is upwards of twenty no, I think it's down there it's about seventeen to eighteen thousand dollars. So the state is saving ten thousand dollars per kid by mm-hmm. letting a donor mark off of their taxes that they donated to an SGO, a scholarship granting organization, and they're not going to the public school. And in Florida, it actually works out doubly so because they have a a cap on the number of kids that are allowed to be in a classroom. So let's say that a, a Catholic school in the neighborhood closed and all those kids had to go back to their public school. In a lot of areas in the country, you'd be able to absorb that, put a few kids in each room and you just have two more students per room. Well, in Florida, there's a cap of 22 kids per classroom no matter what. So if our kids all start flooding back into their schools, they're going to have to hire the requisite number of teachers to match that. Mm -hmm. So in states like Florida, it's especially they're saving money on each student that leaves the public school and goes and takes the opportunity to go into. Or or build more buildings, expand into trailer, whatever they need to do just to physically accommodate those Mm -hmm. kids. Right, right. And the facilities on top of of the Mm. teachers. That is helpful. I mean, pointing out that efficiency difference makes how much of a difference that makes. Um, so, yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you so much for that. Uh, and can you say a little bit more also about kind of the role that Catholic schools play in their just local communities? I mean, one thing that I've heard is that that they often act as anchor institutions that that benefit the neighborhood as a whole, even for the even for the families who don't send their kids to the Catholic school, that there are often just a lot of positive, you know, a lot of benefits to having a Catholic school in your neighborhood. Can Yeah, I, I would say uh, two stories. First one on specifically on Catholic schools is in Pennsylvania. They have a tax credit as well, and they've been able to keep a couple schools in the Philadelphia area open because of the ability for students to come in and finally make that choice to go to the Catholic school or to, or to stay in Catholic school once their parents' uh, incomes change. And the the quote this summer in a, in a piece in Politico was about the, the superintendent there saying, this has been enormous for keeping these communities together and being able to serve these kids because, as we talked about, sometimes the school is the anchor in these families' lives, so they're able to help coordinate, okay, well, you know, this other family can pick up your kid and, and take them to, so you meet this whole community and you find after school things to do while the parents are working, if they have to work, or, or any, all these other little things that come up, you know, you, you, you know, Mr. Smith lost his job, so we're going to help out, you know, and, and pay for Bobby's soccer, you know, tuition for this quarter or whatever, you know, however all those work. I'm throwing out a lot of words on the fly here. His shin guards, his shin guards. <laughs> yeah, 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 there we yeah. go. <laughs> uh, so that would be the first instance where, yeah, there's real tangible stories where um, our schools are making a huge impact in positive ways. And then the second one I would mention is just on, on choice specifically. You know, Virginia Walden Ford is a big advocate here in the in D.C. area for 
the, the DCOSP program as well as other choice programs around the country. And she tells about how when a, a kid receives the Opportunity Scholarship Program here in DC, it doesn't affect just their family. It can affect the whole cul-de-sac or, or the street they live on in that that student getting their uniform, walking down to the metro and taking bus or the train across town and, and coming back and just the change in that student, the change in that family then, and it reverberates around in the community and um, mm-hmm. raises their interests in controlling their kids' education and being in charge of it. And then it just raises the stakes for everyone. Well, you know, Bobby went to high school and he graduated high school. You can do it too. You know, mm-hmm. and you see these examples just reverberate around communities. So it, there's a lot of good things that come out of these. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, now, we've kind of mentioned this. I mentioned the, the thing about uh, the term sectarian being kind of code word for Catholic. Uh, we, and we've talked a little bit on this podcast uh, about Blaine Amendments and anti-Catholicism. It came up and when we've talked about the Trinity Lutheran case, for example. Um, but would you mind just saying a little bit, you know, from your perspective, since you're the, you know, you're the policy guy for the, in Catholic education, you know, how, how we got to this point where, uh, where uh, there's... Uh, this suspicion of pluralism in education. How has anti-Catholicism and nativism sort of played a, a role in this? Yeah, it's, it's played a very negative role. Um, going back, it comes out of just general suspicion of, of our people and our allegiances to Rome and all of those. Uh, I, I don't know that it's so overt in that level now. Mm-hmm. What it is more is... Um, they're legalistic hurdles that are useful to entrench interests now in the states. And so we have 37 or 38 states that have blames. Yeah, yeah. And what those do is empower the entrenched interests, typically represented by the teachers union. They're not the only um, opponents in this argument, but they're the, they're the biggest and the easiest to point to in that they can use these to say, well, we just can't give it to any private school. And so what the, actually what this has done is lumped a lot of allies in with us. So maybe there's a little silver lining in saying, well, now that all the other religions are in there and it's not just the sectarian yeah, yeah. ones, <laughs> that you know we work with the Christian Schools International, we work with Agudath uh, Israel and the Jewish day schools. And mm-hmm. so we are able to expand our allies group, which is a good silver lining of these, but what it's really done is just make it so that there's all these legalistic hurdles. And that's why we came up with tax credits. And that's why yeah, vouchers yeah. aren't really useful at in a lot of states because they can't directly fund them. And it's why we um, are optimistic about an ESA because there's this parent circuit breaker. Mm-hmm. So it, it's poisoned the well of, of goodwill about it because in so many other realms of life, Catholic, um, social groups are able to operate in coordination with the government Mm -hmm. and be a part of it and and be part of that common good that they're trying to serve. Mm -hmm. Catholic hospitals are able to participate. Catholic Charities is a a huge contractor of governments, state and federal around the country. Mm -hmm. Um, But education has been just, you know, pulled out for this very artificial reason and, Mm -hmm. and kind of denigrated the relationship there between deserving parents and the government that could help them. Mm-hmm. And so I'm optimistic that 
those are starting to fall, those, those walls are starting to fall, at least at the legal level. Mm-hmm. We'll see if that starts to change kind of the mindset and the culture and the thinking around this too. Mm-hmm. I mean, speak, can you speak to that optimism? Like, what are some signs that things are getting better? Yeah, the, the Trinity Lutheran case um, is a huge optimistic blow towards, okay, you can't just pick on our schools because they happen to be religious. Mm-hmm. Um, that being religious doesn't change the nature of your participation in the public square. I think that's enormous. I think that those things start to trickle down and that is kind of the history of the Supreme Court. Um, sometimes on really bad issues, they're on the leading cutting edge of right, thinking right. <laughs> and eventually the truth does start to maybe win out and, and I'm speaking, you know, alluding to abortion <laughs> yeah, yeah. here where, you know, very obviously, uh, but they are typically on the cutting edge and then kind of that mindset filters through. And so hopefully the mindset of, well, you can't just pick on religious schools, religious entities starts to trickle through. The other optimism we've seen is just that the the change in mindset towards, well, actually the accumulation of 30 to 40 years of history that the public system as it exists now, the government run monopoly on schools is not serving a lot of the kids that most need to be served. Mm-hmm. So the, the kids that most need to be served are, are really not being served by our system right now of education. And you're actually starting to see it not serve the middle and upper income families either who are being left out. Um, not because it doesn't want to serve them. It's just incapable of giving them a full spectrum education. It's incapable of adjusting and changing at the kind of rate it needs to, to serve them for a modern economy and, and answering the big questions about life. So I think on both, it's never going to answer that latter one. Mm -hmm. And I think it's starting to come up short on the former one. Mm -hmm. And that's why there's this urge for charters and for magnet schools and all these other kinds of public innovations. What, my wish would be is that we we stop tinkering around the edges with the public government run system and just accept that parents should be in charge because of the social justice issues involved in there inherently and then because that's going to actually if you're looking at it from just a the common good of the economy position that's going to serve people better in their lives as far as work and productivity goes too mm-hmm. so we we have a lot of good arguments in our favor our first argument is always, it's the right thing to do, as you read at the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's the way that our society should be structured because that's how God ordained it. But secondarily that, there are a lot of good consequences when you follow God's commandments. Mm-hmm. Imagine that, Funny yes. how that works, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, just uh, to close us out, can you just um, tell us what are some ways that Catholics can be involved in this or or can make a difference on this issue. They can sign up for my newsletter called the CE News. It's on my- <laughs> the end, CE News? CE News, it's on our public policy website as part of the USCCB's website. Okay. A few clicks through there. My name's Greg Dolan. I think if you search around, um, I have a tiny URL called tinyurl.com slash Catholic Ed Policy. It'll take you right to my page. Okay. Our USCCB sites are usually a little cumbersome in their yes. website addresses. <laughs> a little bit. The, yeah. the other thing to do is just speak up about these stories in your local community. And, and this happens from the ground up. This has rarely been a, an issue that has won from the top down as far as actual choice policies that empower mm-hmm. parents. These start from the bottom up. We have a school board in Douglas County, Colorado that passed uh, for just their area for Colorado Springs, 
a voucher program, and that is one of the ones that went to the Supreme Court and got remanded back down after Trinity Lutheran. It holds a lot of hope for us um, eliminating these very bad Blaine amendments across the board mm -hmm. as far as education specifically goes. So that could happen just on a school board level. That was four people out of seven that decided that th this was the better way to run their school board and give parents an opportunity. So we've seen it all the way down at that level. Um, you know, the people in, when they get to DC, they need a lot of air cover for doing things. So what you really need is, is communities where this is happening, state level where this is happening, and it builds the support for this out from there. Mm -hmm. That's very helpful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. It's been very informative and we appreciate the work you do. Thank you very much, Aaron. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Uh, this is Aaron Matthew Weldon. And I'm Mary McCleskey. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. <laughs>